0: I was talking to everyone who would talk to me, the clinicians, physicians, patients, families, and just the amount of suffering that I saw, it was absolutely heartbreaking. And that's when I dropped everything and I started looking for solutions.
1: Hello, this is Owen Bennett-Jones. Welcome to Make or Break, where I speak to remarkable people who reached a moment where they just had to make up their mind. With guests spanning from across the business world, we'll unpack those critical moments and explore how these CEOs and entrepreneurs managed uncertainty. My guest this week is Ekaterina Malievskaya, the co-founder and chief innovation officer of Compass Pathways. She began her career as a family doctor But when her son began to suffer from severe depression, she was shocked to learn how few effective treatments existed for his condition. She searched for a solution, until one day she stumbled across a glimmer of hope. A small research team in America had shown promising results by treating patients with psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Their studies showed clear benefits for people suffering with depression, anxiety, and OCD when the hallucinogenic was administered with support from a specially trained therapist. They hold your hand, you listen to music, you trip out, literally. But as you work through this whole thing, according to the researchers, people come out feeling alive again. Wow. Using psychedelics to treat mental health disorders is not new. Having been used in spiritual ceremonies for centuries, psilocybin was brought to the West and experimented with by psychiatrists as early as 1960.
0: I would say that our prime mission is to explore and examine the biochemicals present in these new mushrooms and find out if they can be of any benefit in this problem of mental disease. As
1: recreational psychedelic use seeped into the culture, the substances were banned, and research into their potential benefits halted for decades, until now. Psychedelics are, for me, easily the best tool that exists to study both the mind and the brain. I think it has the potential to to revolutionize depression treatment, uh, if not psychiatry. Compass Pathways began life as a non-profit, hoping to bring this potentially revolutionary therapy to as many patients as possible. As psychedelic research became less taboo, they found that regulators were highly receptive to their ideas. However, in order to bring the treatment to market, they would need to raise upwards of 300 million pounds.
0: When we left this meeting, we we were really struggling how to move forward. To go into full clinical development program, it's a very expensive process.
1: They had to make a decision to continue on as a non-profit or completely change course and take their chances in the private sector. Ekaterina Malievskaya, welcome.
0: Thank you. Very glad to be here.
1: And just tell us why you got into this, because it is, it's a personal story. Can you just tell us about that?
0: Yes, uh, of course. So um, I was in private practice. I'm an internal medicine doctor, like GP in the UK, and I mostly treated uh, very sick patients, but never thought much about psychiatry. I wrote a lot of prescriptions for antidepressants, but didn't really understand the amount of suffering that is going on in kind of mental health care world. And when my son went to college, uh, he came down with severe depression, OCD, and all sorts of things. And uh, at that time I felt very confident that I took care of very sick patients and we can definitely uh, whip this depression into shape and how hard could it be? And so he was seen in, in the best academic centers and the more he was treated, the worse he was getting. And I think on this path of trying to find help for him, I was talking to everyone who would talk to me the clinicians physicians patients families and I realized that everyone had a story and just the amount of suffering that I saw and inadequate treatments in inefficient treatments amount of side effects it was absolutely heartbreaking and um That's when I kind of dropped everything and I started looking for solutions for him. And I don't know what was more traumatic to see him suffering so much and not being able to help him or to actually see, you know, so many people affected by inadequate treatments. So all that kind of came together when one night I was... um, looking, you know, reading studies, trying to find solutions and um, came across a small study done at University of Arizona. Uh, Nine patients with OCD took psilocybin, which is an active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Um, They took pharmaceutical grade psilocybin and all got better the next day. It was a very short, small study. Um, It was open label, uncontrolled, but the signal was so strong. And By that time, I knew there were no effective treatments for patients like that.
1: Can you just tell us a bit more about how psilocybin first got into the hands of psychiatrists?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a really um, colorful history. M- magic mushrooms were discovered by American banker, Gordon Wasson and his wife, who traveled to Mexico and brought back the samples. And the active ingredient that is psychoactive ingredient was then synthesized by Albert Hoffman, uh, who at that time was a chemist in um, a Swiss pharmaceutical company called Sandoz. So at that time, Sandoz just shipped the drug to, you know, psychiatrists and clinicians that they knew and said, we have this new interesting drug, see what, you know, give it to your patients, see what happens. You know, they could do it. That was before FDA. And at that time, it was a lot of interesting effects described, reports from the field. uh, But there were no um, kind of gold standard randomized placebo control studies. So it was just a lot of anecdotal evidence. And then it, it gradually, it escaped from from the lab, it escaped from clinical practice, and, you know, people started taking mushrooms, LSD, you know, other psychoactive drugs. And, you know, it was uh, a time of Vietnam War, and due to some political pressure and some commercial decisions, this research was shut down. And... Um, I think the last session with psychoactive drug uh, was done in the U.S. in 1973 and uh, the research came to a halt. But then a few decades later, maybe at the end of 2000, uh, a bunch of courageous uh, American researchers came together and uh, started thinking about how to actually investigate the therapeutic potential of these drugs. And the first group of patients that they tried it on was cancer patients, patients who um, have terminal cancer and have anxiety about dying and can't come to terms with their diagnosis. And they showed incredible results that the anxiety would go away and people would consider these experiences as some of the most uh, profound, most meaningful experiences of their lives. And so that research was kind of simmering along There was no funding, Uh, you know, all this small research, small studies were um, uh, funded privately. But it was still uh, a prohibition. The drugs, all psychedelic drugs were uh, Schedule 1, which means that they don't have any uh, medical use and high addiction potential, which now we're learning that it was the opposite.
1: And what does the psilocybin treatment actually entail? Is it like microdosing where you just take a tiny, tiny amount every day?
0: it's um it's it's one off administration it's an episodic administration it's not a pill that you take every day it's the you know 3 or 4 days out of your life what that you dedicate to this treatment Patients usually meet with therapists for you know a few times for for an hour or so uh, leading to the treatment where they get to know each other. They establish therapeutic alliance, which is incredibly important during the session for safety and um, efficacy of the treatment. And then they come for the treatment. And they spend the whole day, um, they take psilocybin, they uh, put on eye shades, they listen to music, and they spend essentially six to eight hours in the facility uh, going through this experience, generating, you know, looking at their narrative, generating insights, generating solutions for themselves. So it's a very personal treatment. And then the next day they come and they meet with the therapist again to discuss what you know, what emerges during this experience, again, it's, you know, patients are very vulnerable, they're very raw, they, you know, some of them face the issues for the first time. And so it's a very sensitive treatment. It's not just take a pill once a day, and I will see you in three months.
1: Is there a difference between people who take psilocybin for fun, and those who have it in a clinical setting? What sort of different reactions do you see?
0: Psychedelic essentially means mind manifesting. So, you you know, they produce experiences that can often be characterized as non-dual, unitive experience, you know, very um, blissful experiences. But they can also produce a very challenging, psychologically challenging experiences. They can induce anxiety. They can induce paranoia. So uh, as these drugs were used recreationally and in some clinical setting, uh, you know, both clinical and research community and recreational users were learning about the effects of these drugs, how to use them. That's when the uh, concept of set and setting came into play. And... um, you know, we've learned from this experiments that it's very important. You know, the state of mind that you are in when you take this drugs and the setting. Uh, you know, the environment. Um, you know, where you take this drugs. So, if you are in a crowded, you know, club-like environment, you probably will have a lot of anxiety and uh, and paranoia. Um, so, you know, it's it's not simply just take the drug and and have an amazing experience. It's a it's tricky and so it's very important the set and setting.
1: How did you begin to turn the research papers and the knowledge you'd acquired into practical treatment?
0: Yeah, so we We kind of embarked on this with Lars Wilder, uh, who has expertise in business and fundraising and uh, has worked in different startups and different companies. And my husband, who uh, previously worked uh, with, you know, big pharma and regulators, and he kind of understood the challenges of drug development and pricing and specifically worked on the issue, how to make the drugs available to everyone who uh, who needs them. You know, what is the mechanism of uh, you know drug pricing, and what stands in the way of accessibility? So we started a uh, nonprofit with the motivation to explore uh, ways, mainstream ways of bringing, developing, and bringing this you know potentially transformational treatments to as many patients as possible. Um, And as a nonprofit, we took it very seriously. We assembled a very reputable board, uh, including experts in social impact and nonprofits, Sir Alistair Breckenridge, who was the head of regulatory agency in the UK, MHRA. So, we had a lot of expertise on the board to consider all the possible options. Also, as a nonprofit, we've never raised outside funding. We were completely self funded. Uh, And I have to say that it was the time when conversations about psychedelics were still a taboo. Um, It's uh, very different from what it is now, of course. And so, We started to explore, to have conversations with regulators and payers and, you know, all the stakeholders who could potentially be involved in this process of developing this treatment and approval of this treatment. Um, And as a nonprofit, I mean, we needed an organization in order to be able to work with other organizations and with kind of support of the board with all the thinking and learning in this process, we came to European Medicines Agency for parallel scientific advice. And parallel scientific advice is when regulators from 28 member states at that time, and uh, payers from 28 member states um, would come together and look at what you have to offer. And so we came with a protocol um, for psilocybin, for depression associated with uh, existential distress uh, in patients who are facing uh, terminal illness. And we were completely blown away by by this conversation. It was a four and a half hour meeting and everyone was very engaged. And the regulators, uh, surprisingly, were very well aware of the research and the results. But the regulators can only regulate what's put in front of them. So if you're a scientist doing research with interesting substance, they can never knock on your door and say, hey, I hear you have an interesting drug, can we look at it? So someone needs to put it in front of them. Someone needs to become a sponsor of this treatment, raise money and take it through the regulatory process, take it through the process of conversations with payers in order for this treatment to be available. So they were very enthusiastic, very supportive, And so as a result of this meeting, they, to our surprise, said, you know, the cancer anxiety is a small indication. We would like you to focus on treatment-resistant depression. It's... You know, 300 million people around the world suffering with depression and about a third of them, uh, that is over 100 million people, uh, suffer with treatment-resistant depression, which means that they don't respond to, you know, two or more pharmacological uh, treatments. And essentially, the more treatment failures they have, the the less chances that they will respond to the next treatment. So it's an enormous amount of challenges. We left the EMA building, which was in um, Canary Wharf at that time, and we were really struggling how to move forward. We kind of felt that we need to, we started this and we need to move forward, but we really um, were at the crossroads and we were silent maybe for half an hour. And then we looked at each other and we said, we cannot do it as a nonprofit because By that time, we already knew that even to synthesize um, psilocybin to GMP standards would cost us over a million. And uh, to go into full clinical development program will be close to 300 million pounds.
1: Does it really cost 300 million pounds to test a drug?
0: So it's not only testing the drug, the whole clinical development program, you know, to develop the drug for market uh, costs, you know, usually pharmaceutical companies, you know, could be between three three uh, 300 million to, to a billion. It depends on the drug. It depends on the complexity. It depends on the number of studies and the number of pa- patients, but it's a very expensive process. So... The majority of the cost is not in clinical trials, but in all other things that you need to do to ensure safety um, and toxicology and all additional studies that go into regulatory submission. So it's a very complicated, tedious, highly technical climb, and it's also very expensive.
1: It would seem to me that one option would be to go straight to the big pharma companies and say, look... The regulators think this is a good idea, the research is promising, why don't we just do this together? Why didn't you go down that route?
0: We did and no one was interested. It was it's a different model, uh, because it's it's a unique drug, uh, with all sorts of you know psychoactive effects. It there is a psychological support and involvement of a therapist in administration of it. It was just too complicated for for big pharma. Uh we did have conversations with, you know, few major players who were still in the cns and depression space but by that time uh, majority uh, you know most of big pharma already left the depression space it's a uh, it's one of the most difficult indications to do the studies in so it's you know from their perspective it was too risky
1: if you're enjoying listening to our podcast and feel inspired by some of the leaders you're hearing make tough decisions in make or break situations you may want to equip yourself with the skills and capabilities to make your own difficult decisions. If so, the Open University's micro-credential, Management of Uncertainty, Leadership, Decisions and Actions, is designed for you. Visit openuniversity.co.uk forward slash management to find out more. The founders of Compass Pathways were determined not to give up on their cause, and yet they knew the chances of raising £300 million as a non profit would be next to impossible. They were also persuaded by an economic argument for taking the company private, and that came down to scalability. A non profit would essentially take that £300 million out of circulation forever, whereas, a for-profit model could instead allow for that money to be reinvested to expand into further research.
0: effects, you feel them about 20 minutes in and then you'll be peaking around one hour to for the next three hours. And peak doesn't mean you just stay at the top, it kind of like comes and goes in waves and then you descend.
1: As well as the cost of producing the drug, Ekaterina Malievskaya also had to consider the set and setting for the therapy. Ready for the music? Here. That could involve refurbishing hospital rooms to create the perfect environment, complete with comfortable furniture and high-end sound systems. And then, of course, there were the therapists themselves. No! 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 Training a single therapist for the clinical trials cost £25,000. Ekaterina malevskaya increasingly felt that taking the company private would help attract the best talent and add a sense of legitimacy that would help take the company into the mainstream.
0: If you want to mainstream this treatment, you want the buy-in from millions and millions of patients and providers, and also from GPs and you know doctors who would refer these patients to treatments who would know that this is a you know legitimate option. So in order to do that, you need to attract mainstream talent and, you know, with kind of scientific, clinical and political gravitas. So that is also, um, you know, and a talent is always expensive. It's much trickier to attract uh, a top talent to join a small psychedelic charity. I mean, there's just so many strikes against it, Right. And we wanted to be as mainstream, as buttoned down, as possible, in order to essentially bring legitimacy to uh, to the approach. Um, and also, we had an interesting conversation with with some of the regulators. Uh, they said that, you know, there could be a, a level of suspicion if you are a charity bringing psychoactive, mind expanding medications uh or you know approaches treatments to mentally ill patients and patients with depression or any other mental illnesses are considered a vulnerable population by definition so the you know it's kind of when you look at it you you know you can't win for losing and it's like no matter what you do you know people will be suspicious, but we felt that, um, you know, being really open, we are developing it as a treatment uh, for millions of people uh, to reach them as soon as possible and as broadly as possible, uh, regardless of their ability to pay with a treatment that, you know, demonstrated the, the highest sort of standards and rigor, scientific rigor. And we don't, look at profit as a motivation, but we look at it as a way of achieving that goal. So I don't necessarily think that was right or wrong way of going about it, but this is the path that we have chosen. And that's what decision is. You just effectively shut down all other opportunities. And that's, that's the decision that we've made because we were the most familiar with this path and we could navigate it much better than the path of non-profit.
1: So there were lots of benefits in transitioning into a for-profit company. But actually, what was the process like? Was it difficult?
0: Um, it took us over a year to set up a nonprofit in the UK, and you know, uh, enormous barriers for um, you know to prove the nonprofit um, status, and you know, for all, our board members to fill out all the documents and you know all the scrutiny, um, and so it took us over a year to get approved as a nonprofit, and hundreds of you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees and legal fees. And it took us, I think, maybe three days to set up a, a, a corporation. And it was very straightforward, well-trotted path. Uh, it was very simple. Um, so when it came to, when we've essentially made a decision to transition from non nonprofit to for-profit, it was legally pretty straightforward because, first of all, we've never raised outside funding, we were always self-funded. The only two assets that we purchased from ourselves from non-profit to for-profit was the name and the branding, essentially the the name and the vision of the company, because it really did not change. It's just the way we were doing things changed, but the um, kind of the motivation and the mission never changed. So we were able to raise over 400 million um, in the last four years, uh, and I don't think um, as a nonprofit we would have been able to do that. I don't think anyone uh, in, on our team is in it for money. I think the entire company is working towards the mission. It's very mission-driven company, and I think that what gets us really through the um, through all the challenges and hurdles that you know we kind of come across. And, you know, I hope in the end, it will be all worth it. But when it gets really difficult, you know, we just read the testimonies of patients and kind of plea for help on uh, on our website and, you know, all sorts of stories of suffering and ineffective treatments and just really tragic.
1: I mean, it's amazing. You've got 400 million pounds, you've been doing your research. But can you tell us at all whether it's actually working
0: well the results are going to be out by the end of the year we we are about to complete 216 patient study um, with 23 sites in um, US and Europe so uh, the study is coming to an end and we hope to get the results uh, the readout of data by the end of the year So I'll be able to tell you more. But I don't know. The study is blinded and controlled, so no one knows.
1: So there is the horrendous possibility that after all this work, you could get disappointing results.
0: Yes, it is a possibility, but knowing everything that we know, um, uh, you know, while we were doing studies, there there are other, you know, studies, investigator initiated studies in uh, psilocybin for depression that generate good signals. I think we're optimistic. Uh, We will definitely learn something from this study, uh, whether the results are going to be spectacular or not. it's a a contribution to the field, definitely. It's a a way forward for psychiatry and understanding of therapeutic targets and the realities and experiences of patients with treatment-resistant depression. So it wouldn't be a complete waste.
1: The regulators, you say, were supportive right from the start. They saw the potential in this and, and basically encouraged you. What about people who've been using it as a recreational drug? Are they pleased that this is maybe going to bring benefits to a wider number of people?
0: Not everyone. Uh, Some people are uh, and some people um, have a view that, um, you know, psychedelics should be available uh, to everyone and it sort of Will take care of itself and the all the mental health issues will take care of itself. Um, we don't think so. We think that, you know, if you look at the example of Netherlands, for example, where you know you can't cross the street and buy truffles in, in the head shop, the prevalence of depression is the same as is in countries that don't have psychedelics widely available. Uh, there are 900,000 of new psychedelic experiences in the US every year. Uh, and yet the mental health crisis is is raging. So, you know, is it a good idea to decriminalize? Uh, I think it's, you know, I, I don't think people should go to jail for possessing drugs because they self-medicate, because they can't get help for their mental health illness. Um, but I, I just don't think that legalization and psychedelics for all will address the the, the needs of people who have been suffering for decades.
1: If you do get positive results from the study and the regulators are happy, what happens then? What happens next?
0: Well, the, the mission of the company is to accelerate patients' access to innovation and in mental health. And access is the key here. So access is determined whether the treatment is reimbursed and included in national health systems or reimbursed by insurances or part of the care guidelines. So with regulatory approval, the work is not over. It's just starting. If we really want to make a difference in mental health and, you know, transform mental health care, transform patient's experience with mental health care, we uh, the uh, regulatory approval is just the beginning then uh, we will start uh, working with payers uh, and implementing this treatment uh rolling it out and making sure that anyone who could benefit from it could have access and that's a lot of work we're also looking at other indications as you mentioned the people with depression they rarely have just depression they have you know substance abuse they have eating disorders they have all sorts of you know uh adjacent issues so we started looking at other indications as well and so uh, based on the mechanism of action and the effects of psilocybin and the mechanism of subjective change, I think there is a huge potential in psilocybin for indications other than treatment-resistant depression. Um, so uh, they, the work has just started.
1: Tell us what lessons you've learned from this remarkable experience that you, you, you've you gone through as a result of your decision to try to develop develop a treatment.
0: Oh, so many lessons. Um, I think the power of teams, it's really, really important to um, to know what you don't know and uh, look for guidance and attract people who are aligned with you. Um, I think, um, you know, there is no work-life balance uh, if you're building a company and you if you Particularly if you're building a mission-driven company, there's you know there's no such thing as work-life balance. Forget about it. I don't think it's uh, it's realistic. Um, yeah. So I guess you just need to be prepared, and you need to be prepared to go all the way to the end.
1: So the lesson is, it's incredibly hard work.
0: It is a very hard work. Yes, absolutely. And if you are in it for money than there is, or for profit then there is, so many other ways of making money in a, in a much more fun and easy and you know faster way than to, you know, work with Schedule One substance in the one of the most difficult indications in one of the most regulated industries. So um, it's all about the mission.
1: Ekaterina Malievskaya, thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you, Oven. This podcast is brought to you by Radio Wolfgang for Audi. It was presented by me, Owen Bennett-Jones, and it featured Ekaterina Malievskaya. It was produced by John-Joe Devlin and Eli Block, and the executive producer was Ellie Martino, with support from The Open University.